Well, we're glad that you're here this morning. Hope you're well prepared to worship the Lord and study his word. We'll be leaving for Indiana. Seth and Olivia and I actually are leaving for Indiana after church. Of course, with Janet's surgery, Janet is going to stay over there this next week. She was going to go to Indiana earlier, so so that meant she had the time off. So she had a choice. Am I going to go with my husband or stay with my daughter? Well, you know what she chose, but that's okay. She needed the help. She had a big day yesterday and Friday going to, uh, she was, Jeff's sister got married Saturday afternoon at 4 o'clock. So that meant Jana had to be at rehearsal and Jeff Friday at about 5.30 or something. And they didn't get home till 11 Friday night. Then yesterday, they had to be over at Heritage Park to take pictures at 11.30. And I really don't know for sure what time they got home. The wedding was at 4. It's probably, I'm guessing, 7 or 8 or something. I don't know for sure what. So anyway, it was a big day for them. <coughs> and then we'll be back here next week for Christmas Day. We plan on having communion on Sunday, and then uh, we'll sing some extra songs. Bob's going to have a, and, and uh, Mary have like a chorus or a concert or so whatever. Brother Frank's not going to sing today. He's going to save it up for the next Sunday. So who knows what's going to happen next Sunday? It could be big. This could be big. We may have to bring, make sure we record this on a CD or something. We might be selling them or something. Next thing you know, they'll be buying a bus. <laughs> be on the road traveling yeah okay um we're, we can't get everybody together at our house so many people you know just working and doing we're not having christmas until actually till uh new year's eve in the morning 10 o'clock in the morning was it 10 o'clock we decided on a new year's eve day i mean yeah new year's eve day but we'll be here New Year's around 4 o'clock or whatever, and 3 o'clock. I'm not sure what time. We'll be ready to go. So anyway, just one of those times. All right, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1. Okay, what we're going to do is do a little survey leading up to chapter 7 and chapter 9 in particular where we read about the promise of a son born of a virgin and uh, the government that will be associated with that, that one. Of course, in the history of Israel, we know that this was all laid out before the foundations of the world. God had laid this plan and uh, forth and in creation of man put all these things into motion that he would be honored and glorified through what he's doing and about to do even yet. And 
a part of that was the nation of Israel. And, of course, Israel departed from the Lord, forsook him, began to serve other gods and idols, and associating themselves with the nations around them and so on. And <clears throat> ultimately, because of Israel's sins and their forsaking of the Lord, uh, he sent the prophets to preach to them uh, that they might return to him, practice righteousness, walk in the light of the Lord, and in fellowship with him. And Isaiah, one of those prophets that God called forth to minister. In chapter 1, you find that the prophet Isaiah is charging Israel with her sins. And so he lays out his case fully in chapter 1. He says in verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. And he makes an appeal to them through um, a well-known well verse where he appeals to them saying, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow if they would but return to the Lord. And you'll find there in verse 11, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices and so on. And over the next several verses, he just lays out his case of all the sins and the things that they were in violation of. <clears throat> in um, verse 24, though, and you'll find this kind of a pattern repeating itself, then God gives them a reminder of a promise of restoration. After they've been judged. And so in verse 24 he says. Therefore saith the Lord of hosts. The mighty one of Israel. Ah I will ease me of mine adversaries. And avenge me of mine enemies. And I will turn my hand upon thee. And purely purge away thy dross. And take away all thy tin. And I will restore thy judges as at the first. And thy counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city, and Zion shall be redeemed, and so on. And so we find that God is making this promise about restoring the nation and bringing blessing. But I notice in verse 25, he says, purge away thy dross. Um. I didn't really plan on this. I guess I better not do that. But if you, I'll just say it. If you remember in Matthew chapter 7, the Lord spoke about the cleansing of his own kingdom in the same manner where he said, many will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord, have we not and done all these things in your name? And then he says, and I will say unto them, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. And he quotes from Psalm 6 where... 
David makes the same statement regarding those who were rebelling against his leadership and his kingdom rule. And it was simply a picture that God cleanses his kingdom. He will purge out the rebellious and the unbelieving. And that's what's happening here. But he promises there's coming a time when there will be a restoration and there will be a city that's called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And, of course, we would know that as Jerusalem. In chapter 2, he moves on to talk about the glories of the coming kingdom uh, and the things that will uh, take place there. And you'll see throughout that chapter, and he speaks about the purging and the cleansing there as well, in, uh, beginning in chapter 5, or excuse me, in verse 5 of chapter 2. He makes the appeal, O house of Jacob, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Well, that's exactly what they weren't doing. They weren't walking in the light of the Lord. And you know, that's the same appeal that God makes to you and I in 1 John. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And if we walk in the light of the Lord, we walk in fellowship with him. And that's what he's appealing to the Israelites to do. Confess their sins. To walk in the light of the Lord. In view of the promise of what was to come. Which we saw there, we see there in verses 1 through 4. He says in verse 2, It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house. And of course that word mountain is a euphemism for a kingdom. The kingdom of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. It will be the supreme. And shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. And of course you could read, read the rest of it. What he promises there concerning what is to happen in the future. In verse 4, it's significant. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Of course, a well-known expression or phrase that we're, we know speaks of the peace that will prevail. There will be any, not any need for weapons of warfare during that time. They'll be using them for agricultural purposes and production. Things that will be a blessing to the entire world. And you'll see repeated phrases. Verse 12, he says, In the day of the Lord of hosts. In verse 17, at the end of that verse, he says, In that day. Verse 20, in that day. Uh, chapter 3, verse 7, in that day, and so on. And speaking of that future time, when all of these events would occur and the things that will take place in bringing blessing and restoration to the nation of Israel. Now, in um, chapter 4, he again says, in that day. But that's the end of this earlier section. Verse 2 begins speaking about the millennial kingdom again. After speaking about more purging, more judgment, now he talks about the, the rule of Messiah once again. In verse 2, In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. 
And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem, and so on, and all these other blessings that were attendant to that. Then, coming in chapter 5, he speaks in a parable, the parable of the vineyard. And, of course, it was a vineyard that didn't produce any fruit. And, of course, the vineyard being Israel. And the analogy being that Israel was not producing any fruit. And, of course, you see all the woes in, in that chapter. In verse 8, woe unto them that join house to house. Verse 11, woe unto them that rise up early in the morning and follow after strong drink. Verse 18, woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity. Verse 20, woe unto them that call evil good. Verse 21, woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22, woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine, and so forth. And just again, reiterating Israel's sins and warning them about turning back to Jehovah, walking in fellowship in the light of the Lord. And really, it's having to do with getting your eyes on what God has promised is yet to come in the future. But they weren't looking to that. They were just looking, you know, right in front of them, just like most do today. What is out there for me today? And so when we come to chapter 6, a well-known passage here that's mostly preached in missions conferences and really has nothing to do with New Testament missions. It has, it, it's a vision that God gave to Isaiah concerning the Lord, the Messiah. And he says in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Now most, well I shouldn't say most, several translations understand the context here or the implication is the train of his robe filled the temple with the idea of the robe you know in, in Isaiah's uh, vision in viewing this relating this to his humanity and above it that is above the throne stood the seraphims each one had six wings and with twain he covered his face and with twain he covered his feet and with twain he did fly twain just meaning two and one cried unto another and said holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory and the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He had a vision of the Messiah, the victorious reigning Messiah on his throne. Now turn with me back to uh, John's gospel in chapter 12. <clears throat> John chapter 12. <clears throat> and 
And if you'll look at verse, I don't know sure where to begin, but we'll, we'll start with verse 36. Of course, the, the Lord here is teaching. John 12, 36. And he says, While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. Now that's, you need to keep that thought in mind there about the light and that Christ is the light. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. That the saying of Isaiah, and Esaias there meaning Isaiah the prophet, might be fulfilled which he spake. Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, of course, that's from chapter 53 in verse 1. But let's continue reading. Therefore, they could not believe because that Isaiah said again, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. Now, if you'll keep your finger here and flip back to Isaiah chapter 6, and you'll see in verse 10, in verse 9, God really here giving his commission to Isaiah. He says, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, now, you notice earlier he said, my people, back here in um, um, well, where did I read it? I just read it a little bit ago, and I was supposed to remember that. Um, first, chapter 1, verse 3. He said there concerning the ox, Noah's his owner, and the ass, his master's crib, but Israel doth not know my people doth not consider but over here he says make the heart of this people and that tells us something about how God had distanced distanced himself from his people because of their sin and sending Isaiah to them with this message make their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And of course, he goes on to relate to them just how long. Now, keep your finger there. We'll move back to John chapter 12. In verse 40, he quotes from this verse here, this passage. He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. John testifying here and quoting from this passage that these were the things that were said when Isaiah saw the Messiah's glory, and he spoke about who? Him, Jesus, 
Jesus, the Messiah. And so when we turn back to Isaiah chapter 6, we understand from this passage that he was having a vision of the Messiah in his glory, on his throne. And of course, when Isaiah saw that, who boy, woe is me, he said. Now, you think about that, that Isaiah was a godly man. He was a righteous person. He was a prophet. And the scriptures tell us that all the prophets are going to be in the kingdom. And yet, when he viewed the Messiah on his throne, he said, Woe is me, I am undone, a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts, Jehovah of hosts. And here he identifies Jesus, the Messiah, as Jehovah. Or, as the Hebrew would more clearly probably say it, Yahweh. And he sees him in all his glory. Now, of course, we could go back to Matthew chapter 19 and 20 and 25, and as we've done before, so I won't do it again today, but we would see there how it says, like say in Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, there's coming a day when these things that the prophets spoke of and the Lord revealed to these prophets concerning the Messiah's kingdom, there's going to be a day when he will come in his glory. And that's the day we look for. That's the day we long for. But in view of that, in preparation for that, there was to be a birth. And so as we go on to chapter 7, he gives a sign to Israel regarding the coming of the Messiah. <clears throat> in chapter 7, it says in verse 1, It came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. So in other words, Rezin, the king of Syria, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, the northern kingdom, they had... United together. Now, if you look on your map, in the, towards the upper left there at an angle, you see that word Syrophoenician. Now, that particular area would have been a little bit north of there, Syria. And, of course, you had the northern kingdom, which if you see at the bottom there, you see the word Samaria. And then you see the words Galilee and the Sea of Galilee. All of that area would have been comprised of the northern kingdom. So these two were uniting together, joining together to march against Jerusalem to take it. 
And of course, Ahaz was king in Judah, the king in Israel, or in, in Judah at that time, the southern kingdom. So keep that in mind. In verse 3, Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Sheer Jashub uh, thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. And say unto him, Take heed and be quiet, fear not, neither be faint-hearted, for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, that is, resin and Pekka, he said, for the fierce anger of resin with Syria and of the son of Remaliah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabeel. In other words, they wanted to depose Ahaz and set up somebody else who would be their puppet king. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and with three score, within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it, shall not, uh, that it, it be not a people." And the head of Ephraim is, is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spake unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. In other words, here's what's going on. Isaiah goes to these to Ahaz and said, "Look, these two are in confederacy against you. They're coming against Jerusalem, but God's going to protect." And in fact, many think that because he says in verse two, he makes reference to the house of David. He didn't say it was told the house of Israel or the house of Jacob, but the house of David. And David was the one whom the promised seed was to come through. It had to be preserved because they knew the Messiah was going to come of the seed of David. And if these two came and captured Jerusalem and Ahaz was no longer king and somebody that was not from the godly line from the house of David being on the throne the promised line, I really should say, because they weren't all necessarily godly, then what are we going to do? And Isaiah is assuring him with this sign, Ahaz, you really don't need to fear these two fellows. These two, what do you call them? Uh, two tails of these smoking firebrands? <laughs> he says, you don't really need to be afraid of them. And here's why. Back over in verse 12. Well, in verse 11, he said, ask God for a sign to let you know that they're not going to overtake you and you're not going to be destroyed. And the line or the seed for the house of David will be preserved. And Ahaz said in verse 12, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men 
but will ye weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And of course we know that Emmanuel means God with us. And the sign was to tell Ahaz that God is with us. He is not going to allow that to happen. And so there was an immediate fulfillment of this in chapter 8. Because in chapter 8, notice what it says there. Moreover, the Lord said unto me, that is to Isaiah, Take thee a great roll and write in it with a man's pen concerning Maher Sha'al Hashbaz. I'm just going to call him Maher from now on, if that's okay with you. And I took unto me faithful witnesses to record, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. And I went unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. This prophetess, of course, being a virgin. And a son was born. And that was to be a sign in the immediate time to Ahaz that they were going to survive this invasion. Don't go seeking outside help from some other place that God is able to preserve and protect and deliver you. He says in verse 4, For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother. Now, I don't know exactly how old a baby has to be when they say my father or mother or mommy, daddy. I guess around a year old or so. Can they do it by then? So he's going to be pretty young. Within a year or so. The riches of Damascus... And the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. In other words, the king of Assyria would come and destroy them. So you don't really need to worry about it, Ahaz. The Lord spake also unto me again, saying, For as much as this people refuses the water of Shiloh or Siloam, that go softly and rejoice at Rezin and Remaliah's son, or in Rezin and Remaliah's son. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord bringeth up upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria and all his glory, and he shall come up over all his channels and go over all his banks. In other words, this army is going to come, this army from uh, Assyria is going to come like a river overflowing its banks, and he's just going to flood the whole place, and Samaria and the northern kingdom of Israel would be overrun. So Ahaz, you really don't need to worry about it. And it says in verse 8, He shall pass through Judah, he shall overflow and go over, he shall reach even to the neck, and the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of thy land, O God with us, O Emmanuel. So therefore, he says, associate yourselves, O ye people. In other words, he's speaking a little bit with a little sarcasm here, you know, concerning Syria and the northern kingdom, Ephraim. 
He says, associate yourselves, O ye people, and ye shall be broken in pieces. And give ear, all ye far countries, gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. And get gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Twice he says it. You're not going to make it. You're not going to come against my city and my people, Judah. He says in verse 10, Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. In other words, God spoke to Isaiah and said, Don't you go along with Ahaz. Here's why. Turn back to 2 Kings chapter 16. I'm tempted to read that whole chapter because it really sets the tone for where Isaiah is. Now, of course, Isaiah, you know, is a prophet. Here we are in the reign of Ahaz in Judah, and Isaiah is a prophet during the reign of Ahaz. And so he says in verse 16, in the, excuse me, chapter 16, verse 1, he says, In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty years old was Ahaz when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem and did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord his God like David his father. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, yea, and made his son to pass through the fire according to the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel. Now, if you can imagine, so he, as the heathen nations around them, in order to appease the gods, they would offer their own son in a fire. And that's what the king of, of uh, Israel did, Ahaz. And he sacrificed and burnt incense, in verse 4, in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. And we've made mention earlier times about the places that men would go to worship. And, of course, there was true worship and there was false worship. Here we had false worship of idols. But you remember Nathaniel. When the Lord found him, he was under a tree and he was worshiping the Lord. And he was one who was seeking the Messiah. But Ahaz had forsaken the Lord. Now watch verse 5. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to war, and they besieged Ahaz, but they could not overcome him. At that time, Rezin, king of Syria, recovered Elath and so on, Verse 7, so Ahaz, now watch, sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am thy servant and thy son. Come up 
and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. Now, that's exactly what Isaiah told him not to do, that the Lord would protect him, the Lord would deliver him, but he didn't pay any attention. He wanted some big guns to come in and protect him and deliver him from these two. And so he sought a Gentile heathen nation to come and deliver him. And so in verse 8, Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent it for a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria hearkened unto him. For the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it, that's Damascus of Syria, and carried the people of it captive to Kerr and slew Rezin. And guess what Ahaz did then? Look at verse 10. He went up to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest, uh, the, the, um, the fashion of the altar and the pattern of it according to all the workmanship thereof. And basically in verse 11 he said, build me an altar like that. And so in verse 12, when the king had come down then from Damascus, the king saw the altar. In other words, while he was still gone, he went ahead and built the altar and had it all ready for, for Ahaz when he got back. And notice what he did then. The king approached to the altar there at the end of verse 12 and offered thereon. And he burnt his burnt offering and his meat offering and poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings upon the altar. All offerings that were to be given in accordance with the instructions that God had given Israel back in Leviticus. I mean, they they really had departed from the Lord. And when Israel, or excuse me, Israel, when Isaiah in chapter 1 pronounced all those woes and named those sins against Israel, this is the kind of thing he was talking about. And so King Ahaz in verse... uh, in verse, well, you'll see that he brought also the brazen altar in verse 14, which was before the Lord from the forefront of the house, that is, out of the temple. He brought the brazen altar out from the forefront of the house, from between the altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, Upon the great altar burn the morning burnt offering, the evening meat offering, the king's burnt sacrifice, and his meat offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their meat offering and their drink offerings and so on. In other words, just take this pagan altar and everything we've been doing for the Lord, do it on this altar right here. So in verse 16, it says, Uriah the priest did what he commanded him. And so in verse 17, King Ahaz cut off the borders of the bases and removed the labor from off them and took down the sea from off the brazen oxen that were under it and put it upon a pavement of stones. And the, and the covert for the Sabbath that they had built in the house and the king's entry without turned he from the house of the Lord for the king of Assyria. Boy, what a turnaround. Total rejection of Yahweh and a total embracing of the pagan gods of the king of Assyria. Well, that's why 
Back in Isaiah chapter 8, the Lord said, don't walk in the way of this people because they've turned away. As a matter of fact, in verse 13, he says, rather sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread. But of course, and that was a direct appeal to Isaiah. Ahaz, of course, rejected the whole thing. Now, if we go to <coughs> excuse me, trying to move on. Notice down towards the end of that chapter, he says in verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they, that is the people of Israel, Speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And of course, having rejected Yahweh, darkness had come over the land. And of course, the northern kingdom had rejected Yahweh. They had set up their own altar and their own worship center in the north. And he says there in verse 21, they shall pass through it, hardly bestead and hungry, and it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward, and they shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. And of course, we know that all the way up until the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, those in the southern kingdom in Judah did not look favorably upon the northern kingdom at all. Remember, they called them the Samaritans and they had no dealings with the Samaritans and so on. And it's because when the king of Assyria came in to defeat Rezin and Pekah, they carried many of them off captive and they left many of their own people in the northern kingdom. They settled there. And so you ended up with this mixture of Jew and Gentile, the Samaritans. Now, there was a remnant that remained apart. In other words, as Jews, they remained separate from, and especially up in the area around the Sea of Galilee. That's good to know when you come to chapter 9 and verse 1. Because there he says, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation when at the first he lightly afflicted the land. Now, the translation there is a little bit um, stilted there. Rather than when at the first, it's in the former time. And that's what when at the first is talking about. In the former time, he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, or Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her. Or actually, uh, afterwards, he treats the way of the sea beyond the Jordan with glory. It's really more of a positive kind of a thing. And then comes that familiar verse there, verse 2. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Well, you see on your map, 
you see the Sea of Galilee, and look off to the left and to the southwest, and you'll see Cana, and then right below Cana, you see Nazareth. And of course, that's where the Lord Jesus Christ was from. And he revealed himself and began his ministry in this area around on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. You see Capernaum there and Bethsaida. This is where the Lord Jesus Christ began his public ministry. And so if we turn back to to Matthew's gospel, and I forget where we're supposed to turn to. I got it down here, and I think I know, but I'm going to look and make sure. Yeah, this chapter 1. Supposed to be pretty easy. Matthew chapter 1. And look at verses 20 through 23. That's not what I wanted. I wanted the quotation. Um, I thought I wrote it down here. All right, where's that at? It's in the New Testament here. Oh, here, I'll find it. Try Matthew chapter 4. In verse 12 of chapter 4, it says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. Excuse me, verse 14, it says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so what I'm trying to do is build this picture here of what the Scripture is saying regarding the condition of the land and the darkness that was over the land at that time under Ahaz and the sign that was given to the land and to Ahaz regarding the promise of a son, a Messiah, who would be of the lineage of David that was to come. And its immediate fulfillment was in Isaiah who had a son, we saw there in chapter 8. But the ultimate fulfillment, looking way into the future, the New Testament writers record and quote from this passage here in 9, verse 1 and 2, as applying to this son, this Emmanuel that was spoken of. As a matter of fact, and I may have turned too quickly here, uh, in, in Matthew 4. You know, it's in another passage where he's identified and called Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, there is a very clear identification by the writers of the New Testament and the quotation of these passages. They saw clearly that this one, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was the long-promised Messiah. And he brought light to that region of Samaria that was still in darkness 
several hundred years after Ahaz and Isaiah's time. And so this promise of a son and this one who would be called Emmanuel, God with us, Isaiah was simply assuring Ahaz that he's going to come and God is going to see to it that no one and no nation is going to destroy this line and this seed for the promised Savior, the promised Messiah. And next Sunday, we're going to take up with the rest of chapter 9 through verse 7, where it says, For unto us a son is given, and so on. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word, even if I'm not able to express it as I ought, with the promises that you've given regarding the coming of the Messiah and the promise of one who would deliver Israel, who would rule and reign in righteousness, who would bring peace to this earth. And though the promise was immediate for Ahaz, and there would be peace for the nation, we know that there's ultimately to be peace to the entire earth. And so we look forward to that day. We look forward to that privilege and opportunity we have to worship the birth and appreciate the wonder of the miracle that you did through Mary. Lord, we pray that as we look through this Christmas season that we will not do so with glazed eyes, that our vision would be sharp and clear as we consider what you have done through this wonderful, wonderful miracle and the fulfilling of your great promise to us. Lord, thank you for including us in that promise. And then let us be faithful to worship you in truth and in righteousness because of what you've done. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.